You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Kevin Beckford. Like so many of our guests, Kevin wears many hats. He's a research producer for the Mike Muse Show on SiriusXM, co-founder of the Hustlers Guild, and an advancement manager at Urban Assembly. Kevin has the background and credentials that great stories are made of. He was raised by his grandmother and went on to earn degrees from Yale, Cambridge, and UPenn. He eventually landed in Obama's White House as a domestic policy portfolio lead and casework analyst, and later served as a special advisor at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. By the end of the Obama administration, you would think that Kevin could write his own ticket to any job of his choosing, but that wasn't the case. He wasn't even being called in for an interview for the roles that he really wanted. Kevin ultimately made his way to New York and built a life and career for himself outside of government. If you are an avid listener of this show, you have heard me say that our paths are not always linear. There are often all kinds of unexpected twists and turns. And Kevin is a great example of the resilience it takes to stay the course when life looks much different than what you planned for. So without further ado, take a listen and please enjoy. Kevin, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Delisha, I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. You look excited. (laughs) I'm getting a good vibe. Um, I know we spoke a while ago, but I am excited to hear your story and and dig into it. And you really represent um, the spirit of what this show is about. So really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. So tell me, who is Kevin Beckford? Ooh, I love when you ask that question at the start of your shows. Um, I'm a big fan. Thank you. Uh, Kevin is a child of the highest. I'm an educator. I'm a learner. I'm an activist. I'm a co-founder of a nonprofit called The Hustlers Guild. I'm a, I'm a producer for a radio show on Sirius. Um, I'm a lover of love. Um, I'm a true believer in the power of empathy and people. So you just said a whole, a whole lot. And I feel like because you listened to the show, you were ready to yeah, go. And I'm not mad. One. I was ready for that one. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. <laughs> not mad at all. Um, so I'm, I'm going to start this a little bit differently than I normally do. And I actually want to start with the empathy piece. Um, and because it's a, a soft skill that, you know, some some people have inherently and others have developed over time and it's a blind spot for some people. So why is empathy so important to you? Thank you for asking that mm-hmm. question. Um, it's important for me because it is empathy, uh, the demonstration of it that's had such a profound impact in my life. Mm-hmm. It is the dem- demonstration of empathy from others that really changed the trajectory of um, the path that I could have taken and the path that I actually did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born um, in Camden, New Jersey um, at three days old, my grandmother took me from the hospital um, and uh, between her and relatives, uncles, aunties, uh, they cared for me. Um, They were incredibly empathetic to my experience as a child. Um, I was not the perfect child uh, coming up. I wrestled with some demons um, by proxy of uh, challenges of my parents Mm -hmm. um, that had an effect on me. So I would act out. I was, you know, always like getting into trouble. Um, But it was, again, that demonstration of empathy from uh, family members Mm -hmm. at an early age that kind of showed me um, slowly but surely just how profound um, that skill, um, that action could have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I grew up into, um, and continued in life, I, I, I tried to uh, perfect that skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I became a teacher, um, I spent some time in the classroom as a, as a teacher. Um, that skill uh, was one that if you if you want to survive, if you want to do right by the kids, mm-hmm. you better like sharpen that 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 tool. Um, so that particular, that skill of empathy, that that's the skill of, of caring about people and um, putting yourself in, uh, into the perspectives of others, I think is very important. I agree. So take me back um, to your childhood and what were you told either then or when you became of age about why your grandmother took you at three days old? Mm, Yeah. Um, So I was told a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, I was kind of reared in a very chaotic 
uh, situation. So my mother was very young mm -hmm. when she had me. My father was very young. Um, they were like many families. There were a lot of people in the mix that were just kind of given their opinions and given their perspective. And, and not all of them were coming from a good place. And so what ended up happening was uh, a lot of that frustration and confusion and anger was taken out on me mm -hmm. um, as, as a child um, in, in ways that, um, you know, you would never uh, wish for any child. Mm -hmm. um, it was really um, my grandmother um, taking me in and um, constantly reinforcing the idea that I'm, I'm, I'm meant to be in the, on this earth, mm -hmm. that I am special, that I am someone um, that really... Uh, started to make me believe that because when I was really, when I was young, um, even into, into my teenage years, I really didn't think I had a purpose um, on this earth. Uh, so it was hearing, um, getting reinforcement from her and getting reinforcement from others, um, other family members that really kind of solidified the idea that, you know, again, I'm somebody that I can do something um, meaningful um, on this earth. And did you have connection with your parents at all or access to them or were you insulated? That's a that's a good question. Um, so my mother uh, and I had a very volatile relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, my mother was always in the picture and it's, this is the first time I'm actually ever like speaking about this on a public platform and I'm comfortable doing it, but I'm just kind of like, whoa. Um, it happens on yeah, the December right. 26th podcast. <laughs> I'm kind of feeling it right <laughs> at the moment. Um, I, as I, I mean, I've shared my story with, with others before, but, um, my mother and I had a very volatile relationship mm -hmm. and, um, for quite a time, I, I would almost say I like had hate for my mother. Mm -hmm. My father wasn't in the picture, uh, so it wasn't like one of those things where it was like, for me, it wasn't like I ever missed him or like ever really like needed like that assurance from him. Mm -hmm. um, and it was two things for that. One, because there was so much dysfunction um, in the, around the situation, I was like, well, praise God, like he's yeah. not in the mix and my grandmom's here, mm -hmm. and my auntie's here. At least they go to church and at right. least they got a certain moral compass. Like, oh, it's, I'm probably, you know, it's probably for the better. Um, but then also had a lot of uncles mm -hmm. um, who were really um, sound and really strong um, men who, you know, kind of stepped into the mix. Um, so I didn't have much contact with him. I did have contact with my mother. Mm -hmm. Again, it was super, super volatile. And, it, and I would say it was multidirectional. Okay. I think sometimes people want to say like, oh, you know, as a child, like you can't be responsible. You're just a child. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't know. Like I, I took a lot of the, all the confusion and a lot of what I thought was hate, um, dislike from her and kind of directed it towards her as well. I was not an easy child. I'm just going to put a key to mm -hmm. Like I, I was just like, I'm going to let you know yeah. that I'm, I'm really not, not with this. Um, but again, it was this demonstration of love I saw probably from my grandmother around when I was like, probably like nine or 10. I would notice, I, I started noticing like my, my grandmother um, in particular would always, you know, welcome my mother with open arms. Mm -hmm. You know, she would always say, you know, come to the house. I have food. I've cooked for you or like here's some clothes or here's you know you know here's something like you know she never like just seeing that mother's love for for her daughter yeah. and, and 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 the fact that she was so steadfast and trying to get her the help that she needed i'm um, seeing that type of love i think did transform me um so so much so by the time i was like i would say 12 or 13 like i had really gone through a process of 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 transforming myself a little bit or transforming my, my actions in that relationship mm -hmm. and then also forgiving. Um, and, and, I, and I think this is important. The story of, I guess, my personal uh, backstory, I think is important to uh, make reference to because it really has shaped um, the man that I've, uh, that I have become and the man that I'm becoming. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really the reason to which I, you know, entered into education. Yeah. It's the reason why I, you know, became a part of the the Hustlers Guild as a co-founder um, and board member. Um, it's what's led me to, um, you know, do a lot of uh, activist-oriented uh, type work that is very grassroots and very much focused on family. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it's the reason why I'm not, like, really super bought into like the cancel culture mm -hmm. and the oh like you gotta like be removed or cancel or blah 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 like I'm, I'm it's all of the backstory has kind of led to an orientation uh, to trying to just make sure that you know get us healed yeah 
That's awesome. Um, so if, if somebody were to look at your LinkedIn today and see the degrees, um, you're uh, another, now the second uh, Obama administration alum hey. who we've, we've had on the show. So when they see that and the work that you've done, they would probably have a, a knee-jerk uh, assumption about your background and where you came from. How does a boy from Camden and those of us who grew up in Jersey know Camden? Like we we know that's not an easy place to grow up, right? So how does a boy from Camden that gets plucked from the hospital by his grandmother, has a volatile relationship with his mother, is acting out, doesn't have a relationship with his father? How do you get from there, from Camden to the experiences um, and the acad- academic credentials that you have? What shaped you in those years where you really obviously course corrected at some point? In? Yeah. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, I have to give all uh, praise and credit to God. Mm-hmm. Um, it is by the grace of God that uh, the trajectory that I was once on had changed. That for sure is like where I got to give credit uh, first. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, uh, there were so many different things along the way that uh, kind of where I was checked. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think, you know, there are always those moments where life checks you and you kind of get it together. I think I was very fortunate to kind of be checked a little earlier on some things and kind of grow up a little um, earlier um, than perhaps most. Um so uh, case in point, you know, when I'm coming up in school, like my grades were good, but like I would, I was a talkative kid, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was just like, I love to crack jokes and, and, and whatnot. And I'll never forget, uh, I was probably like in third grade, teacher called my grandmother, my grandmother, and teacher was like, oh, this kid, like he's acting out, he's talking in class. My grandmother's from Jamaica. So my family's from Oh, Jamaica. yeah, that's so an that, important, that's, like, an, that's important, yeah, an important, yeah, important like, detail. The country of Jamaica, <laughs> like St. Elizabeth. Uh, so she wasn't having it. So she let me have it in that class. Um, and, you know, that's just one of so many examples where I was, I guess, like, uh, course corrected. Mm-hmm. Like things were just kind of like, okay, I was just checked. Um, in the right moments at the right time. And I think life has, again, like life does that for everyone. I think it was just, I was just fortunate enough to kind of have it happen a little earlier. Um, and between that, um, when I was like uh, in high school, 13, 14, um, I got saved again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, you know, you know, I was raised, <laughs> raised in a Christian church. And, you know, I got baptized when I was four, but mm-hmm. you know what that is. Like, yes. I didn't really know what was going on. Like, you know, people take two, three, five trips down that aisle or whatever. And I finally, uh, you know, I did it in a moment where I was like, okay, like, um, get your stuff together. Mm-hmm. Like I was probably like 13, 14. I was like, get your stuff together. Like you're kind of all, like I realized I would, sometimes in life you get to that point, you realize you're just a mess. You're just all over the place. And like your, your emotions are everywhere. Um, your ideas, your orientation is just everywhere. I just wanted direction. Mm-hmm. So at 14, I kind of just took a, a thing to just re, uh, to just realign my purpose around that same time. So I get saved again. So, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm trying to do the right thing. But then also I had uh, a barber named Hassan. Mr. Hassan was so instrumental in my life. Um, this man uh, would taught me how to you know, make me do push-ups in the mm-hmm. barbershop and uh, would also, of course, <laughs> correct me. Uh, in his way. In his way. <laughs> uh, but he, so one day I go to get my hair cut and he's like, hey, Kevin, you know, um, you know you're pretty smart. Like, uh, if you uh, keep your grades up, if you, uh, you know, do well in high school and you apply to Harvard, you know, they'll pay for you. They'll pay for it. It'll be a full ride because family's making under $40,000. They don't have to contribute. It's a need-based school. Say no more. Mm-hmm. Like that was like a light bulb. So it like, clicked for you right then. Clicked right then. Like literally, it was like, okay, I did well in school, but it wasn't by by any. I was just afraid to get my ass whooped. Like, mm-hmm. That's why I did good grades in school. Because <laughs> like, you didn't want that was like Jamaican grandma to come out. My grandmother, my uncle. Oh, <laughs> like listen. So it was like okay, I, like that. But then when I got that bit of information, um, it really changed things. It changed the game, and mm-hmm. so I really started to um, perform very well in, in school. Um, I took a greater initiative to. Uh, to excel in my classes, to excel in extracurriculars, um, and, and and to really immerse myself. Uh, you know, things happen. One thing connects to the other and connects to another. Um, and, and and in doing, in, in immersing myself into learning and into becoming a you know, better person and a better scholar, or whatever, I 
um, started to see the inequity mm-hmm. um, in that existed in the school system. And, and so uh, I was the only Black uh, child student in my gifted classes, so mm-hmm. in the honors classes. So I'm in a predominantly Black and brown school. At this point, I'm in um, a town called Vineland. Okay. So I had moved um, well before um, from Cameron to Vineland. Um, but I'm at this high school that's predominantly Black and brown nonetheless, and I'm the only Black student in that class. And I realized that it was because I had access to information. Yes. Because my grandmother, when they tried to put me into another, you know, the non-gift on our honors class, she walked up in that school and was like, this is what you're not going to do. <laughs> um, it was because I had the the barber who told me, like, mm-hmm. listen, if you, you know, you, if you follow this certain track, you will, uh, in fact, uh, you know, can it well, in fact, get a scholarship to, to college. And um, that really ignited in me like a passion mm-hmm. for us and for representation and making sure we had access and we made making sure we had information. So while I was in high school, I was campaigning like for, you know, inclusion in our classes. Wow. It was me and the, the, the principal, this racist principal of the high school, like me and him going toe to toe in like newspapers, like in newspapers oh, yeah, and yeah, everything. Yeah. Like, we was writing op-eds and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it was literally like that was like the start of like a shift. Mm-hmm. Um that's um in and, and, and for me and like becoming the person that I now am. I now am like uh, becoming more of an advocate. Like it started out and again, I started advocating around uh, equity and uh, inclusion in uh, within my school system, making sure that black and brown kids were taking these, were had access to the same information as these white privileged students Mm -hmm. who were at the high school and making sure that they were represented in the classroom um, in these courses. And so uh, that's my thing now. Really, it's it's access and it's information, um, and it all stemmed back from that time. What I appreciate about your story, though, is it highlights um, the implicit biases that exist within academic environments as well. Like, I think it's becoming more known now um, in the digital age and social media and stories getting uh, told and, and, and publicized and spread far and wide. But like these teachers are the same, you know, people who live in your neighborhoods and exactly. who are involved in sometimes questionable behavior. They're the ones teaching these kids and shepherding their their academic careers and holding the power to say you don't belong right. in a gifted program because I've made that decision, even though I see some smarts here. I see you've got some talent and some ability. I'm not going to give the extra nudge. And there are some amazing teachers mm-hmm. out there, but there are absolutely racially hostile environments and kids are expected to achieve despite that. And oftentimes, you know, not there are a lot of parents who either don't have the bandwidth or the availability or the know-how themselves exactly. to advocate and stand up like your grandmother did and say, no, that's not how this is going down. And, you know, we hear these feel-good stories of the teacher that plucked the, the student with promise and put them in the rigor, rigorous environment. But there are plenty of other children and, you know, young people who were not given that opportunity. And, you know, how might your your path looked different had your grandmother not stood up and had Hassan not stood up and say, hey, you know, if you get the grades and you get in, you can go for free. Um, and I think, you you know, you brought up two things that are crucial across not just in academia, but in general, when we're talking about inequities and that's access to information and advocacy mm-hmm. for sure. Absolutely. So at that point when you, you know, were working towards Harvard, were you like, OK, I'm getting in, you know, there's no question about it. Or were you like, this is a long shot. Let me work on some backup plans as well. Yeah. So my thing was like, I'm, I'm going to school for free. So mm-hmm. I'm either going to an Ivy League school where I know they're going to pay for it, mm-hmm. or I'm going to an HBCU where I can be myself. Yeah. Like that was it, like for me. So all I applied to were, <laughs> were those schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I knew that I wanted to major in African-American studies and political science. Um, I I knew I wanted to uh, really um, get a hold of policy and kind of how it impacted um, us. And again, going to the access piece, like Mm -hmm. I knew that was my life's call um, from from that point, like mm-hmm. it wasn't really, I knew like, you know, people say, oh, you want to be an engineer, you want to be a doctor and those things are great to uh, um, aspire to. But for me, it was about purpose. Mm-hmm. It was like, I want to give us access. I want to give us that. Um, I want to get us information. And so when I was applying to schools, like I was like, let me go to the places that can kind of allow for that. Right. And free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, went, ultimately uh, ended up going to Yale University, mm-hmm. um, did in fact major in African American studies and political science and did a lot of uh, 
kind of community work and kind of oriented work, um, assistant teaching. So I did some work in like um, some of New Haven schools and um, was in the NAACP and was on Yale College Council. And, you know, when I saw like how money flowed at, flowed, was flowing at this, <laughs> mm-hmm. flew, oh, so like, flew, flewed out. It flewed out. Money was getting flewed out. Money was getting flewed out all through the place. Uh, but when I... And this is why I love our show. But anyway, <laughs> right. continue. <laughs> <laughs> Where um, I, just seeing kind of how rich white people moved and how yes. rich white money moved, I was like, oh no, I'm gonna take this to us. Mm-hmm. Like, so, that, so like that was it. Like I was like, you know, I joined the Yale College. You were on your Robin Hood. You're I like, like... It really was, and, and, and it was so beautiful about. Yale, I think Yale's black community is like, they knew it. Mm-hmm. Like, I was the only black member of that college council for a while. <laughs> and it was with, for our purpose. I was like, we getting this money, we getting this representation. Um, and that's what it was. And, you know, Yale was super formative. Um, it was a very formative experience for me, but I knew I wanted to, uh, again, um, wanted to get into the classroom mm-hmm. to that point of access and kind of you, what you said, Delisha, about, you know, we always hear about these really great teacher stories, mm-hmm. but we don't really hear about the not so great ones. I kind of wanted to address the not so great ones myself as a teacher. So Got it. To be a, uh, to be a counteract to that. Um, and so after Yale, I actually got a scholarship to uh, study at the University of Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, free masters. I'm about that. Like, I was See, like, you, you were masters. playing no games. I was really playing no <laughs> games. I, when I, listen, so like that's, <laughs> so like I did that. And then after that, I went into, uh, I moved to Philly. Um, I started another master's at UPenn. Go Quakers. Wasn't yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was graduate school of education, um, second home, and uh, started teaching at that time, and and really uh, was working towards uh, again and expanding access and information to students um, as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, the power I was able to see, I guess, the power of an individual um, just by proxy of you know uh, knowing the culture and coming from the same culture and looking sure. like you, being able to really. Uh, uh, pass on information about to other students um, in very powerful and meaningful ways, like telling, being able to tell students like, hey, like, um, you know, if you go to you apply to Yale, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's need based or like, you know, these are the steps you need to take. You know what I mean? Like this is score you need in your SATs or like this is, you know, the type of extracurricular you could you should consider to like, you know, uh, continue on a particular education path. Um I kind of got to see that power, the mm-hmm. power of that. So I was in the classroom for two years. Um, I was going into my third year of teaching when the opportunity to work for the Obama administration uh, came up. So what grade were you teaching at that point? Yeah, I was teaching uh, ninth and tenth grade. Ninth, ninth and tenth grade, what subject? Uh, history. History, okay. So African-American history, world history, and I taught AP Gov. Okay, so you're, you're teaching, like living your dream. I live my dream. Living yeah. your vision, getting stuff. all this free education, yeah, yeah. shaping young lives. <laughs> How do you end up getting plucked out of there to work for the Obama administration? Right. And so that was that was uh, surprising for me. And I think the experience of, of transitioning from the classroom mm-hmm. to that administration, I think, is reflective of, uh, of, of, of just how life can work. And uh, you can have plans, but God can has other plans for you. Um, I had applied um, going into my third year of teaching. I had applied to an associate program um, in the White House Office of, uh, of Presidential Correspondence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I so I had something to do in the summer. OK. Ultimately, what happened was I was rejected that summer. I was kind of like, oh, dang. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I got to, you know, work two, three other jobs. You know what I mean? In the summer and, and you know, stay local or whatever. I can't do this cool thing that I'd heard about. Um, but but they had actually kept my resume. Wow. And so the offer was extended following um, for that fall. And I was initially hesitant. Mm-hmm. I was going to say no. Uh, my family was like, my grandmother in particular was like, if you don't get yourself <laughs> to D.C. and work for this black man. <laughs> How did she really say it, though? Did she say it with the accent? She, she, oh, she had the black accent. I mean, it, that doesn't die. That doesn't die down. Like she does not code switch out of it. It is like a fixture for her. She yes, has a beautiful accent, mm-hmm. and she's told that. So she, yes. she doesn't switch through it. So she was like, you know, but she, she was really more so like, I really want you to pray on it because mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like God is telling me that you need to go. She's like, get out, out of here. Yes, she was like, get out of here. Yeah. So what was that experience like for you once you you made the transition? 
it was great. It was a mm-hmm. fantastic experience. Um, so I started um, out uh, initially managing the education portfolio in that office. Okay. So the correspondence office is essentially one of two communication shops um, within the White House, or was rather. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think I don't know what's going on. I don't know what they do now, no but. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but um, it's one of two communication shops. And, and, and really the purpose of the office is to communicate to the American public on behalf of the office of mm-hmm. the president. And so that means responding to uh, emails, letters, casework um, that's submitted by the public. So if you write a letter um, to the president, it is this office that kind of uh, facilitates that okay. process of you getting a response or you getting help. Um, so I started out managing the education um, portfolio mm-hmm. um, within uh, the correspondence office. And then eventually uh, after some uh, like five or six months, I started doing a uh, Domestic policy became my portfolio. Okay. And so um, all domestic policy issues uh, from everything from firearms to race relations and police brutality um, to... Healthcare, um, that all kind of came under my purview. So, w- when you say came under your purview and you're managing that, what does manage? Because I'm like, okay, I understand letters, but like, this yeah. is the president of the United States, leader of the free world. Like, that's not three letters a day. <laughs> so, like, are you triaging stuff? Like, how do you manage that volume? Yeah. And you know, or what are the some of, some of the ways in which you felt like you added value to that administration? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to provide a little bit of context, uh, more context to the inner workings of this office, um, you know, thousands of emails and letters are submitted every day. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. um, there's a team actually of interns and volunteers and staff that like read through all of this correspondence. and So every letter gets read. Every letter. Every email. Mm -hmm. Is read and every letter um, receives a response um, if it's appropriate. Okay. Um, So my role was really kind of um, uh, managing some of those processes to make sure that people received a response. Okay. Right? So that was like managing like interns and volunteers and staff mm-hmm. and, and instructing them as to how to respond to people. Um, a lot of, a big part of my job was crafting the responses mm-hmm. themselves. Um, so like if they're in, in, in letters were to be constantly updated. So like there were like stock letters, okay. kind of, you know what I mean? That like you would get a response mm-hmm. very generally. But, you know, as things would happen, as situations like San Bernardino, like the shooting, yeah. for example, like if that does that happen, you know, you wanted to be more responsive to that issue, the issues uh, around firearms. Mm-hmm. And so you would update that letter. So there's a whole process for that. Okay. So that's like, you know, I would write another draft and then they would go through like, a you know, a whole team and like you check in with like domestic policy council and a whole bunch of other folk who didn't want their eyes on it to make this sure sounds that, like, overwhelming it, it was it it was fun mm-hmm. it was you thought it was fun I'm like I would literally be in there typing like I don't know what's going on right now yeah. but like <laughs> and, and you know what was cool about this particular administration was that it was so innovative mm-hmm. um, it was so responsive and so mind you before President Obama came into office no president really cared about this office to I be frank it. it was kind of like the, the stepchild of the White House it was mm-hmm. like okay like whatever like this was the first time where like stuff was archived really in the way that it was and like digital responses were given so like it was a pretty innovative uh space and so um some really cool things were happening and I was very blessed to be a part of that administration and, and I was I really loved the work that I did um and, and to their point of value add um you know as a man of color mm-hmm. Um, with my particular like persuasion, I'm unapologetically black, and I was then. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, you know, I, 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 I want to say this with humility because I know it's kind of like the it thing. Like, oh, not everybody. <laughs> and I'm like, where was you like five years ago? Like, uh, it was, you know, I, I, I was in that space, occupying it in my my true personhood. And and, and you know, one thing my grandmother told me in coming into the uh, White House was like, don't forget who you are, and don't forget that you know that. The history of this country, you know, mm-hmm. like in, in our history, you know, as immigrants to this country, like honor that in your work. Don't don't sell out. Right. Um, and I was actually one of few uh, black men in that White House. Um, and, and, and not only that, but I think I was one of few people with my particular or orientation or mm-hmm. perspective at times. Um, there were definitely others. Though, like, I don't want to say like, yeah, oh, no, there, there, there was no or none, but because there, there were for certain. But. I was a, probably a little in in my small little world was a little bit more um, 
gully with it. Like, I would let you know, like, <laughs> this this response is unacceptable. Like, if you have someone writing in to the White House, for example, about, like, Eric Garner, mm-hmm. like, we're not going to send them, like, some simple little stock letter. That was the perspective I was coming from. Like, mm-hmm. We need to, like, really be responsive. The challenge in me saying that is, uh, the challenge with that is, you know, we can't really speak on our behalf. Like, it's really, we got to, like, be we can't say what the president hasn't said. Right. And what does it mean? And I love the president, uh, President Obama. Mm-hmm. But like, what does it mean when he hasn't said a whole lot? Yes. So you get, you have to be crafty. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of finesse a little bit. You kind of have to advocate a little bit. And so a lot of my time, um, you know, again, in my small function of uh the office of the of the White House space was being very strategic and and, and being an advocate and really kind of like getting on people's nerves. And also <laughs> like being very nuanced yeah, in that yeah. having to try to get a message across and not placate, but also playing, you know, um, within the rules of their game. And like, you know, you think about this in any environment where you read an email over and you're like, is this going to come across um, correctly? And then now you're in a situation where that can make national news if right. it doesn't. Like, you know, that's exactly. that's a lot of pressure. Exactly. That's a lot of pressure. So did doing that work and the, the role you played within the presidency, uh, within that administration, change the vision that you had for your career? Were you like, mm, maybe teaching is not the final destination for me? You know, is it time to do policy? Is it time to do something else? Did you have that internal dialogue while you were there? That's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because I had always oriented my purpose to a mission of service mm-hmm. and, and, and just trying to get in where I, I, I can fit in and trying to like, you know, just do what I need to do at the time that God has like called for. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really see it in that way so much as like, oh, teaching is done. Like, mm-hmm. I, I truly like to think that in ways we are all teachers and we're mm-hmm. all educators and we're also all we all are learners. And so um, my thought was, you know, teaching, I definitely would love to, I'm always going to try to be teaching in some yeah. capacity and like as a career, it's definitely something to return to um, at some point. Uh, having said that, I really was bit by the communications bug, mm-hmm. by the advocacy bug a little bit um, within the um, uh, while while working for government. Just seeing all these dope black folk who mm-hmm. are like, um, you know, in their in their uh, circles of government, like being operating in the same way mm-hmm. and then pushing the needle um, was very encouraging. And I was like, wow, like you can actually, you know, affect some change, um, you know, on the policy and on the communications end. And so that's kind of what shifted gear. Uh, for me, um, it was interesting because when the uh, administration ended, I was like, okay, like, you know, I'll get a, a communications policy role, like super easy. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you, you kind of feeling yourself a little bit. Yes. Feeling ourselves. I mean, you know, despite the outcome of what, whatever, you know, what, what happened with uh, 45 Orange Moon. Uh, getting into, <laughs> That's uh, a new one. Like, Orange Moon. I haven't heard that one. <laughs> I love that Erica Badu song. Let me not disrespect that song. Let me find a different name. Um, but from the, the transition, I think a, a lot of us thought like, oh, okay, we're set. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've, you know, we've got the White House on our resume. Um, but that actually was not the case um, for a lot of us. Which is shocking to me. Yeah. Shocking. You know, we we sort of from the outside, those of us who are not in politics, we just assume when people leave an administration with that kind of legacy that you're writing your own ticket. Like you go get a six-figure job at some consulting firm, you know, in, in the Capitol or somewhere else doing anything, right. calling it strategy or whatever. Right. Like, you know, I assumed that the headhunters were chasing you down. The recruiters were chasing you down and you couldn't find a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and and well, I mean, they were chasing some mm-hmm. down more than others. And what was the dividing line there? Oh, it was race. OK, you let's know, just like, say it. We keep yeah, it. We yeah, keep it 100 yeah, on this yeah, show. Yeah, like, you know, like a lot of a lot of white folk coming out of the administration, you know, were getting offers from the Facebooks and the Googles and, um, you know, Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and everything else. Um, and many of us were, too. And many of us were going on to start our own things. But um, many of us weren't. Um, or at least the process was like delayed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, as I was navigating like that transition time and, you know, admittedly, I did have some offers come in, mm-hmm. um, but like they were like low, 
like, like, you know, eh, like yeah, you know, like just not like for me. Um, but like the things I was seeking, which were like again, like communications policy roles in the in, inside and outside of the innovation space in particular. Um, those things were just not coming through. Like I was not even getting the looks or like even wow. the calls for the interviews. And so, um, being that I uh, occupy a very particular space uh, within or, or, or function within my family, um, kind of as a provider, mm-hmm. like, I, you know, you know, some of us, you know, you know what it is. Yes, Sydney, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. And it's like, oh, snap, like, you know, like months have passed, three, four months have passed. And like, I'm still looking for work. Um, I just got to hustle and I just got to do what I got to do. Uh, and so I started consulting and do, working a bunch of side, side jobs. I moved from D.C. to New York mm-hmm. to make that happen. Um, I took up a gig, um, which I still do now, as a producer for SiriusXM, um, for the Mike News show on SiriusXM. Okay. Um, so I, I took that up. And then in the process of all of that, I also co-founded um, the Hustle Skill. Um, with two of my colleagues from the Obama administration. Shout out to Jason Spear, oh, who yeah. we spoke to uh, yeah. earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so like in the process of kind of navigating what was very much a, a very uncertain time mm-hmm. and one which I was very anxious just because it was like, oh, snap, like I, I have like bills to pay, like, right. things to do, like what's what's, what's going on? Um, I was really able to grow as a person and, and, and really be stretched and, and challenged by God and, and to start some things that would have lasting impact, mm-hmm. right? It's, uh, or last with me. So I'm still obviously with the Hustle Guild and uh, we're doing, you know, work, great work in, in the DMV area and hoping to expand beyond. Um, still producing for the Mike Muse show and Sirius mm-hmm. XM. Um, and I'm still, you know, uh, not, and I have a really solid, fantastic uh, position with a leading uh, education nonprofit organization here in the city. Awesome. So, you know, those are all the positives that came out of not being able to find uh, you know, your dream gig or an ideal gig for you at that time, which is awesome because I believe every experience in our li- our lives are leading us and pushing us to where we're supposed to be. But we also keep it real on this show. Yeah. Um, so thinking about the irony of you were in the black man's White House and as a black man, you were not getting the opportunities like that. That to me is like so typical, but crazy at right. the same time. Because everything was like, we've turned a corner and we've reached a new plateau. And this man has done his eight years and someone who looks like him, who worked in his White House, is not getting the plum offers. It's the same people that did in the administration before that one and before that one. So, you know, did that play at all um, on your psyche or did you develop anger around that? You know, I get the pressure piece, which is another thing people don't understand that, you know, I hear people say, well, um, who people don't look like us. I'm gonna, or just come from a different socioeconomic background. I'm just gonna chill out until something else comes, like the right thing comes, and I'm gonna live off my savings, but not having the pressure of supporting other people financially and feeling the weight of that. So, did you feel anger or um, ire or jealousy in any way? being in that predicament? Mm, That's a great question. Mm -hmm. Definitely felt anger. Mm -hmm. I was really angry by the situation of it all. You know, I think there could be, can be an inclination to kind of second guess yourself. Yeah. Think like, oh, is it me? Am I doing something wrong? But at this point, I I didn't do nothing. I shoot. I did great work. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, I mean, we all knew, Mm -hmm. you know, a few other folk that I know in the similar predicament, we all knew like our worth. We all knew how, what we had done. Mm -hmm. And that's why we weren't willing to necessarily settle um, for a position that or an opportunity that just didn't honor the work that we had done, mm-hmm. the, the hours after, um, you know, all of the hard hours we put in outside of a, the what, a scope of what we were supposed to put in, that the, the sacrifice we made emotionally and um, socially for certain. Sure. Listen, um, to... <laughs> Uh, you know, really get to a point where it's like, okay, like we should have these options. So, yeah, I was I was angry for for certain. Um, but I mean, I, it, because like it's just like is what it is. Mm-hmm. Like in a sense, like this has always been. Like it just wasn't a surprise to me. Yeah. And so I couldn't say like it was like a new anger. Mm-hmm. It was just like a, <laughs> just the same anger <laughs> kicking up. The same. <laughs> it's just like okay, America. We just we just this is just what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I. I think it ultimately channeled into some of the other projects, though, like, I, I, you know, I was able to kind of take that that understanding and that anger, that frustration mm-hmm. to then say, you know what, 
I'm gonna do it do it on my own. Um, I'm gonna create opportunity for myself. Um, and so a, a part of, you know, joining the Hustlers Guild as a, as a mm-hmm. co- and, and being a co-founder was very much that. A premise of the founding of, of the, the Hustlers Guild, the, Hust- so the Hustlers Guild is a uh, registered 501c3 that uh, provides STEAM training to uh, middle school and high school students in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. So that's science, tech, engineering, arts, and mathematics mm-hmm. um, to middle school and high school students. So that's what the organization does. And the idea of it actually came from this, like the fact that like dang like you know you have black professionals like from the white house and and Mm -hmm. from uh the from the administration and and from so many other sectors at this time that are like not really like that are that really have to fight to get their jobs it's like there's a there's an issue of access and there's an issue uh there's an issue of access that's Mm -hmm. there and so what that nonprofit, what our nonprofit seeks to do is to to bring access particularly to the innovation space and it starts by starting with middle and high school students so again in this in the moment in which I'm trying to figure things out, I'm taking that anger, I'm taking that frustration um, I'm, um, to then try to give us access mm-hmm. through the found, through the uh, development of the Hustlers Guild. Which also, I think, is like super black of you, right? <laughs> because <laughs> we, we, you know, right. we find a way we and we take difficult situations and we create from it. And not only that, we create uh, vehicles for other people to benefit as well. Because is who's thinking about like starting a nonprofit when they can't find a job? Like that is, especially a nonprofit you're not using to line your own pockets. Because people yeah. do that. But that's not what, you know, that's not what was, exactly, that's not what was, was happening here. And one thing, um, I just had one of those like light bulb moments when you're talking about access And if you still can't get access after Yale, University of Cambridge, Penn, like, are you kidding? Like, you know, there are people who have one of those who considered a feather in their hat and you've got three on your resume and this administration. If you can't get access, what, you know, what about the kid from Northeast who hasn't even been given opportunities to really thrive and and flourish um, and don't even have the exposure to know what's out there. And that's why the work that you're doing through the Hustlers Guild is so important. It doesn't mean that tomorrow the access is going to be um, any easier, right? Or the the probability of success or people saying, okay, I'm going to give this young person an opportunity, but giving them the exposure and creating opportunities or channels for equity that may not necessarily exist now. I think that is amazing. And the fact that that was born out of you being so credentialed, because in that situation, it's easy just to be like, I'm just going to keep trying until I find what I want and then find the role that's right for you and be like, I'm back, baby. Like, you know, I'm, I'm back on top. But to use that to really invest in the next generation is commendable. Oh, thank you. And I, you know, I have to give credit where it's due. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have to shout out uh, Yasmin Salim. Mm-hmm who is a good friend of mine and uh, another co-founder as well, because it was really, she birthed the idea. Mm-hmm. And, um, and us having so many of conversations about access and, you know, we were doing work, um, me, her, and Jason mm-hmm. uh, Spear, uh, we were all doing work in DC with young people. And it was like, yo, let's just combine. And she was the one who was like, okay, like yeah. all are of a, a similar mindset. Um, I know you're passionate about access and like, I see you doing this work, you know, in this moment, mm-hmm. you know, as you're still trying to like take care of yourself. Right. Um, so she brought me along um, the, the journey and it's been a great one. But um, but thank you for for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 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 very uh, appreciative. I'm very happy with the fact that I, I I I push forward on that front with my team. And I have to ask, when you decided to move to New York, was there opportunity here already? Because I mean, this is an expensive place to move if if the career is kind of shaky. Yeah, you want to know something? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of, sort of. I mean, you know, I. Uh, had spent some time um, in the summer at a fellowship where I worked for the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that summer of working, developed some contacts and kind of learned the, mm-hmm. the field of New York. Like, I'm a hustler. Like, I, 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 I'm a true. You Jamaican, so, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, <laughs> we're going to make it work. My family's also in Jersey mm-hmm. as well. And so I have family in, in South Jersey, but then also in North Jersey. So it was very important. Um, some familiar stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. Family stuff was happening. So it was important to kind of be closer to my okay. family. And so that kind of sparked the move. Um, I was like, I'm going to make it work. Um, so I had my little savings. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to get 
these jobs, like by any means necessary, and like you know, continue forging forward on the mm-hmm. other stuff. Um, but very early on, actually, the opportunity to produce um, for the Mike Me Show presented mm-hmm. itself, and I was like, well, well, look at God, like you definitely wanted me to be here. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So tell me about the work that you do now in academia, which is, I, I presume, is like your main your main gig yeah, yeah. in addition to all the others. <laughs> yeah. So um, I work for uh, a leading education nonprofit as an advancement manager. So mm-hmm. my job is to, uh, is, 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 is a hybrid of communications and fundraising. Okay. Uh, so bringing them, bringing the big buck. Which is not easy, <laughs> not which we have easy. talked about a little bit on this show as of late. <laughs> it is a grind yeah. and people who do this full time yeah. every day have a newfound respect for but, you guys. You know, it's, it's, it's like amazing too. Um, um, mm-hmm. For me to be in that role, um, sometimes, I mean, it's a hard job for certain, mm-hmm. but um, I just thank God that I'm aligned with an organization that is so committed to students mm-hmm. um, that that piece of the work, you know, kind of happens. And mm-hmm. I'm there like facilitating it, but because student outcomes um, uh, are, are so strong within the network, you know, I have fun with it. Yeah. Like, a lot of fun with it. Um, so there's that and... Uh, to the point on um, jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, still a board member, obviously board member of the Hustlers Guild mm-hmm. and uh, still produce for the Mike Me Show. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm honoring my Jamaican. Oh legacy. man, you you like but quintessential. <laughs> and it also is very New York. Yeah, so you got yeah, it doubly yeah, bad. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it just is what it is, what you got to do. It's so funny when I talk to people who live other places and they're like, you, you know, people have so many jobs in New York. I'm like, have you, do you know anything about what it takes to make it here? Like, that's just the way it goes like it's just the way it is so well you've given many examples of peaks and valleys but tell me about a specific time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day Mm, that is a really good question that's one you often ask Mm -hmm. (laughs) another one um i would reference uh so uh one of the the joys of my life is um a younger cousin of mine named nathan Mm -hmm. um nathan is one of the chillest dopest um young men you will ever meet he's 20 um he is on the spectrum Mm -hmm. um, for autism um and uh, Nathan is one of the kindest, most loving people on this earth. And he's like, I've learned love through him, actually. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, in school, he would have moments, ep- uh, episodes where he would just really act out. Mm-hmm. Um, and to give you a little bit more context to where I'm going to go, um, Nathan and I are very close. So much so that Nathan, I'm his, I, I was a disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I, I'm the person to be like, Nathan, put that down, give him a look, and he'll stop whatever he's doing. Well, there was this one day, um, I'm in D.C., you know, I'm at work, I'm uh, in my office at the White House, in the White House Correspondence Office, and I get a call from my aunt. She's like, Nathan is, like, really acting up. Like, he, like, threw a desk, like, mm-hmm. he was, like, you know, going crazy, like... He's having an off day, yeah. He's having a really <laughs> off day. He was having, like, an off week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... I was working on one particular project that, you know, had a very strict time deadline. And, you know, I often would make trips home, you know, mm-hmm. just I'd pop up in this classroom and stuff like that. So I'm like, dang, like, I'm gonna have to pop up in this classroom, like, you know, just to like, you know, make sure he right. gets an idea for it. But like, you know, for to hold him off for like a week or a month or whatever. But how do I do that when I have this tight deadline? Um, ultimately, um, you know, I, uh, what I, I booked Amtrak. Uh, you know, for a trip home, made book Amtrak so I can have Wi-Fi, <laughs> so I can like do my work <laughs> on my way. Took a train to Philly, uh, you know, took a bus to um, to his school, popped up in his classroom, you know, had a moment with him, talked to him, discipline, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, give him the look, and um, because it was very important for him to kind of be addressed in the space. That mm-hmm. he was in. Um, but did that and then went back straight back to D.C. continue work. So that, I think, uh, like, there's a 24-hour oh, where God. I had to just be, like, be extra, uh, extraordinary, like, just do my work, do what had to be done, but didn't honor, like, I guess the responsibility I had and uh, the role I had in my family. And that is uh, another, like, running theme on this show as of late, like, real life don't stop. Yeah, <laughs> you get these great opportunities <laughs> and then you're trying to balance, you know, the stress of what's going on at home and family. And, I mean, I think most of us, and, and I'm not saying that our white counter parts don't have it, but we tend to have these tight-knit um, family units and the roles are not necessarily traditional in the yeah. sense that, you know, 
he's just a cousin for some other people. But in your situation, you know, you're serving in a father figure role. And, you know, if he were your kid, yeah, you'd have to leave. And you chose to, you know, because you serve, in a sense, you serve that position for him. You chose to to make it work with Amtrak's terrible Wi-Fi. Right. That expensive ticket. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it hurt me also. I went to that school. I was like, listen, like, I done booked a $200 ticket. And literally Amtrak is like flights. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, why am I paying this much yeah. to get on a train right. with bad food? But anyway, I digress. Right. So you mentioned empathy earlier. How does that empathy really feed into the work that you do through the Hustler Skill? Abs, that's a great question. Um, so with um, the F Hustle Guild, again, we're um, serving uh, middle and high school students mm-hmm. um, in some of the most economically depressed areas in the DMV area. Um, so it is paramount that uh, empathy is foundational to our work mm-hmm. um, in order to reach, you know, you could have, you know, so what we organize workshops, we go into schools and, and have coding sessions and trainings with students. You know, we're working with the students mm-hmm. and on any given day, a student can be having like a really off day. You know, it is empathy that allows you to say, take a step back and really address that that student as a person and say, what's going on? Like, you know, how, you know, out behind the scenes, like, it, you know, I know we're here for this session, this, right. this coding class. We want to give you this skill or we want to help you develop in this way. But perhaps that we just have to take a step back and, and kind of see, you know, where you're at and see how we can be of help, you know, to uh, to you in this moment. But beyond that, the the role that empathy plays with the Hustlers Guild is that we place students, we place people, we place the culture first, right? And mm-hmm. so in recognizing that our histories, that our perspectives um, are not honored in the mainstream uh, through an empathetic lens um, in our approach and working with the students and, and executing our work, we are able to be responsive. But I think, you know, I, I say this with humility, uh, get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, 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 we're really able to connect with the students and make sure that they're getting what they need um, beyond just the skills uh, of um, of the STEM skills and the information, but to just truly grow as people, right? And so uh, one of the components at um, one of our sites in DC was uh, uh, exploring the idea of code switching Mm -hmm. and professionalism. And, And rather than just say, oh, you must code switch, you know, we engage with the young people and say like, you know, like, what are your thoughts on this? And like, you know, what are, what are your opinions? You know, they're talking about like what's real, what's fake and yada, yada, yada. But like, you know, having them kind of engage and debate and form, formulate on their own uh, an understanding of, of professionalism for that, that honors their personhood and that honors their culture, we felt was very important. And mm-hmm. so that came through, you know, that comes through empathy, that comes through understanding and, 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 and putting yourself in, in, in someone else's shoes and trying to understand where they're coming from versus just being like, oh, you must like right. do this or you must believe this in order to be successful or to, because the reality is like not every, first of all, not every uh, student we're working with is going to go into to, 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 to steam mm-hmm. or not every student is going to go into some will go to government some will go to you know become teachers whatever it is what we try to do through empathy is really empower young people to to be their true selves Mm -hmm. and to succeed in the ways that they define success that is incredible so if you were able to look into the future 10 years from now um, and see the thing that the hustlers guild accomplished that you would deem the next decade is success what would that thing be We've already accomplished this, but I would like to see more of it. Um, so that and that would be, uh, you know, high school students creating their own apps, mm-hmm. right? And so we actually had a, uh, we do we did a scholarship competition last year. Um, we did like a festival where we like honored, you know, the winners of the of the competition through like like a like a picnic. We had like food and music, and it was pop. It was on point. It was fun. It was a fun time. It was on point. It was a fun time. And um, one of our scholarship winners, um, she uh, was a young lady who created an app. And I would love to see more young people, you know what I mean, uh, creating apps and creating um, solutions uh, to problems that they've identified. Mm-hmm. And so 10 years from now, I would hope that that would kind of be like a widespread thing where um, young people are identifying like this is the problem that exists in my community. And I want to take the tools that I've, you know, I'm getting to uh, to solve that problem. And how do you think we narrow the gap? Um, between them having now access to the information and they're creating the apps, that gap between that piece of the puzzle and then the other major component, which is access to money. 
to actually not only create something, but get it out there into the marketplace. How do we narrow that gap? Because historically, we as a people, we don't have access to the money that, that you know, that white people do who <laughs> are another space. So have you guys explored that part, that piece of the puzzle as well? Getting these kids, you know, if they have these strong ideas, the investment that they need to to make it a real, you know, thing that could possibly be monetized? So our approach is multi-pronged. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the Hustlers Guild is, in, in that respect, is uh, is premised on a, uh, a network model. And so we okay. have an advisory board of over 30 Black and Brown professionals in the DMV area that are in um, tech, that are in government, that are in that are in uh, the entertainment space, mm-hmm. um, that can uh, kind of leverage their network and okay. their access. Um, and so, as a result of having such an, a strong and really, really great um, advisory board, some really great individuals on there, um, we're able to uh, kind of uh, funnel um, access and, and funnel um, resources through that mm-hmm. way. You know, we're very committed to uh, creating pipelines um, for young people, of, uh, for young people. And so um, and that's not just with the students we work with, but that's also with uh, university age, uh, college age students. And so uh, we have a, a group of interns from Howard University that actually go in and like teach these coding classes. Nice. They are financially supported to do so because, you know, it is hard out here. <laughs> it is a struggle. Yes. Um, and that's something we, we really try to honor. And so, you know, they go in and they get this experience. Right. So they go into the classrooms and they learn how, and, you know, they learn how to teach. Um, they, they they learn how to they they to build their skills as like as, a, as an innovator, and uh, we then use our our network, mm-hmm. um, the board and our advisory board to say, okay, like let's connect this young person who's teaching these courses to like Microsoft or like a Google, and so like from that of proxy of teaching the classes and being involved with the Hustle Skill. Um, in that way, a lot of um, the college-age students have gained access mm-hmm. to individuals and to experiences that perhaps may not have otherwise. And so um, all of that to say we're very, our model is very, is predicated on us really coming together and working mm-hmm. together and just like sharing. We really, we hustle like this, like, okay, like we are, we, we, we recognize like we, we have so much worth. Um, you know, individually, but when you like bring it all together, right? You know what I mean. It, it, it the the power is exponential, and it may take a level of hustle mm-hmm. that other groups don't have to deal with. Yeah. But when you add our creativity yep. and our determination to that, and our ingenuity, something amazing can be birthed out of that. Exactly. We're not about that mediocrity. That's right. for no, sure. That that does not <laughs> exist for us. Right. No, it doesn't. So, <laughs> what is next personally for Kevin Beckford? Yeah. Um. So. I, you know, I'm still trying to, I'm still growing. Mm-hmm. I'm still evolving. And so I've dedicated, personally, I've dedicated this year to um, just trying to grow mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a person, um, trying to become, you know, I'm even trying to become uh, a loving and caring brother, mm-hmm. cousin, and, and son. Um, I'm working very hard on some relationships of past mm-hmm. with, with family. Um, I, so this for me has been just like a year of growth, um, and a, and a year of healing. Um, just turned 30. So, you know, like that one, that process mm-hmm. of like, okay, like, uh, new decade. Like, Comes at you fast, it doesn't really it? really came fast. <laughs> um, so that, and, um, you know, yeah, I just hope to continue the work of, of service. Uh, I, I don't necessarily know um, what the future holds in terms of like the next a title mm-hmm. or like anything like that. But I'm actually very content with where, with where I'm at. And I know sometimes we're, we're told that, you know, you should always aspire for the next. Yes. For the next thing, you know, but I, 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 I'm really happy where I'm at. Um, and I also know that I'm growing where I'm at right mm-hmm. now. And so I just hope to continue um, doing the work that I've, I've been doing and, you know, just answering God, yeah. you know, when, when he says, you know, do this, I'll follow, I'll, I'll do it. But for now, I'm, I'm, I think he's he's telling me to you know, work on myself, take care of myself, you know, go to therapy, yes. and, you know, drink your water and go to the gym. <laughs> Hydrate. Like, you know, stay hydrated, you know, like take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that's 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 the year for me. And those the mending relationships is so important in an ongoing process. It really Absolutely. Is. It really is. It really is. It's hard. Mm-hmm. 
So where can people find you online? Oh, yes. Um, so you can follow um, at uh, The Hustlers Guild mm-hmm. um, to uh, on all of our social media platforms to uh, keep track of all the things that we're doing. Um, want me to give me, like my Instagram? I mean, listen, if you want followers, you can <laughs> hey, put it out hey, there. Hey, oh, well, sure, why not? Because <laughs> that's the only thing I use, really, mm-hmm. in terms of social. Well, in Facebook. Find me on Facebook. Oh, on Instagram, it's KevyKev1589. That's my personal Instagram. Let me find out. Yeah. Kevy Kev. Kev, it's my nickname. You know, Kev, <laughs> Kevy Kev. Um, but uh, you'll you'll get to see a lot of the fun musings um, that I like to share. Uh, nothing like, <laughs> nothing too deep. I'm, I'm a true believer in the important and, and having fun, mm-hmm. and spreading joy. So you see that. Yeah, and I mean, why we ask that question, even for people who are not trying to be a public figure, is because it's the power of network. So, you know, you've had experiences where your insights could help someone else. And I think our us as a group, we're still evolving in that way to be able to cold reach people and say, you have information that I need. Can I take you to coffee or can I, you know, discuss your journey further because I heard you on that podcast or what have you. And Absolutely. as it relates to expanding um, our not only our networks, but also our, our unified power, those conversations need to happen more. And Absolutely. we need to do more of an exchange of information and knowledge Absolutely. share. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Please feel free to reach out to me. I'll give my, my email as well. Go for it. I would welcome um, any uh, inquiry uh, that's so desired. So my email is Kevin F, as in Frank Beckford. Uh, that's B-E-C-K-F-O-R-D at gmail.com. Uh, do not hesitate to send an email and note that way through slide in the DMs, send me a message, <laughs> uh, follow me on, on Facebook. You know, <laughs> I have a lot to say and share. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, But Alicia, that's such an important point, though. Like we really, uh, you know should in fact make ourselves um, accessible for sure uh, through our platforms um, so that we can send information and I'm all about that. Yes, I'm telling you, we, we want to advance the culture <laughs> um, and, and make even more impact than we already are is crucial. Absolutely. It is absolutely crucial. And then, you know, when people start getting deep pockets yeah. and then, you know, when you say I got an idea, you know, this, this is... Then you're going to be unavailable. No, then, like, you know. I'm I, that's a joke. I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. But in any event, to our listeners, um, for those of you who are out there, build those networks. We talk about it on this show. And, you know, often so much of it is based on relationship um, and you don't know because you're not going out there trying to get the information. So if somebody who's been on this show knows what you want to know or experienced or moved in an area or taken a journey that you want to start um make the reach out, you know, take that leap uh, and you never know what door that might open. So look up Kevy Kev online, who I know for a fact is super black and has probably really got some opinions on the Internet. So you might want to check that out for sure. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Thoval. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.